0: I've got a quick question for you before we get started today. Were there any outstanding presentations at the last Master Brewers district meeting you attended? I bet there were. Well, we'd like to share those stories with listeners, but we need your help. Unless they attended that same district meeting, Master Brewers members, including me, will never know about these outstanding presentations unless they get uploaded to the Master Brewers District Presentations archive. So next time you sit in on a really great presentation, ask your district officers if you can help them get the presentations uploaded. It's super easy. There's even a short how-to video link at the top of the archive. And if there's a presentation that you think we should highlight here on the show, shoot me a quick message. You can find me at community.mbaa.com. This Is the Master Brewers Podcast brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Let's go! go, 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 go. go. (sighs) Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations.
1: Down. Moving too fast. And then this Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by Get to Know Proximity Malt. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com.
2: I kind of had to treat water out of necessity moving to Madison, Wisconsin from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Our water went from nice mineral-free river water to extremely hard, extremely alkaline groundwater, Um, and everything was going wrong with the brewing process. You look at mash pH and treat that, and all these other things just fall into line. This week on the
0: show, we're talking brew house water and mash chemistry. This interview originally ran in May of 2017. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss. Welcome to the Master Brewers podcast. I'm your host, John Bryce. Today, I'm joined by Joe Waltz of Ale Asylum in Madison, Wisconsin. Joe has participated and contributed to Master Brewers in many ways. Currently, he's probably most visible as the vice president of District Milwaukee, But today, we're here to discuss Joe's article, Brewhouse Water and Mash Chemistry Management, which was recently published in the Master Brewer's Technical Quarterly, Volume 54, Number 1. Joe, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Glad to have you. Before we jump into some of the practical water chemistry, Joe, why don't you take a minute to tell listeners about your Master Brewer's experience and why you can continue to carve time out of your busy schedule for the MBAA.
2: Well, I got started in Master Brewers, I believe it was in 2006. I was working my first brewing job. I was the assistant brewer at a place called J.T. Whitney's. And my boss took me to a meeting, and I've been hooked ever since. We went and toured an old uh, Cargill facility that was being shuttered. Um, Pretty mind-blowing getting to see the uh, sort of the dichotomy of 1800s technology and ultra-modern technology all all there together in one place. Uh, Met some great people, drank some great beers, and I've been going to meetings ever since. Um, was really valuable for trying to get a brewery off the ground, ended up not being able to raise the money to do that. Now I have time with my family. That's not a bad thing. Um, And the technical information is just stellar and keeps getting better. Great. That sounds
0: uh, familiar to me as well. So very good. Um, Your your article begins by getting into some of the water treatment goals or uh, goals of water treatment. Uh, Brewers and brewing books often look at alkalinity and water chemistry through the lens of mash pH and extract conversion. But you mentioned several other important factors here, including one that I've always been surprised doesn't get greater attention. And that is the role that pH plays in the extraction of malt polyphenols. Joe, a lot of brewing literature gets hung up on the role that sparge water temperature plays on polyphenol extraction, But why don't you describe to listeners how pH affects polyphenol extraction and therefore beer astringency?
2: Well, when I started brewing, I started as a home brewer. And one of the first things I I realized when I got into all grain mashing was that um, you always had to be really careful about sparge water temperature, yet... Um, decoction mashing was a was a common practice in, in older lager breweries and how could they do that? How could they heat that mash up to boiling and not extract all these polyphenols? Yet sparging it was such this danger zone. And so looking into it and just doing a lot of research, I, I started to realize that it was a combination of, of temperature and pH um, that play a role in, in polyphenol extraction. So um, I kind of had to treat water out of necessity moving to Madison, Wisconsin from Ann Arbor, Michigan, our water went from nice mineral free river water to extremely hard, extremely alkaline groundwater, um, and everything was going wrong with the brewing process. So um, realizing how all these things fit together was was pretty um, nice. I mean, the, the way that you, you look at mash pH and treat that and all these other things just fall into line.
0: Yeah, that's true. It's, it's always amazed me how many brewers just you know freak out if their sparge water climbs a degree or two above 170. Meanwhile, they're just not even monitoring or addressing a ridiculous, ridiculously high second running's pH, you know, and um, like you said, once you get that right, a lot of other things get right too. Without getting too deep into the chemistry, let's give listeners a high-level explanation of, of some of the water chemistry variables that are of concern to brewers. Let's start with water hardness. Could you please explain what hardness means, so which ions are relevant, and what levels are generally acceptable?
2: Sure. So water hardness, usually when people are talking about, about any um, you know, water compound chemical, um, they all have different definitions. But as far as brewers are concerned, as far as I think the U.S. Geologic Survey is concerned, hardness is just the amount of calcium and the amount of magnesium in a water supply. And calcium is useful for all kinds of uh, Brewing processes, it, it helps with uh, enzyme protection, it helps with uh, protein coagulation, helps with yeast flocculation. So, as a general rule, you want to keep calcium. Um, but the one thing, the one place where you don't want calcium um, is having excessive calcium in the work going into the fermenter because it can actually inhibit magnesium up- uptake. So, magnesium is critical for yeast metabolism. So, you want both of those. Um, you want enough calcium to do all these other things that I just mentioned, but not too much. So kind of hitting a sweet spot is as nice as a general rule. Hardness is something we want, um, except for excessive magnesium, which usually isn't a problem.
0: Okay. During my uh, travels, I've I've encountered a few small breweries that had actually installed water softeners. Could you talk about why this is typically not the right approach to process water treatment in the brewery?
2: Yes. And water softeners, what, what they do is really the opposite of what we want. So we talked about why hardness is generally good. Um, the flip side of that is that alkalinity is usually bad because it raises the pH of the mash of the sparge water. Um, Too low of a pH is is rarely a problem unless you're in a situation where you're over-treating your water. So water softening really does the opposite of what you want. It it gets rid of the chalk precipitation, which is why we do it in our our houses, Um, but it strips the water of hardness and leaves the alkalinity in the water. So now you have high pHs throughout the whole process, and that's problematic.
0: Okay, next, let's talk about the the concept of residual alkalinity. What is that? Why do we need to adjust it? And what are the possibilities for making those type of adjustments?
2: So residual alkalinity is something that a a German scientist named Paul Kolbach came up with in the the 1950s. And he realized that calcium and magnesium can both interact with uh, phosphates in the mash to lower pH. And he basically looked at that as a balance against alkalinity. So how much alkalinity do you have raising the pH versus how much calcium and magnesium do you have lowering the pH? Um, Combining all those three into an equation based on his own observations um, really is a a good starting point for predicting mash pH. So your options for dealing with residual alkalinity, and usually you want to lower it. So you're looking at either raising calcium or raising magnesium, which is pretty ineffective and you really don't want to do because excessive magnesium can take, taste sour, it can be bitter, it can even be a diuretic. So you're looking at raising calcium or lowering alkalinity um, as the, the two fundamental processes. And lowering alkalinity is usually um, very effective because you get about three and a half times as much um, movement for every milli equivalent per liter that you, that you change the residual alkalinity.
0: Okay. So let's, versus add calcium. Okay, so let's talk about um, in a little more detail some of the different ways you can do that.
2: Sure. So um, one of the one of the treatments that I really like as a as a home brewer is is slake lime, where you add calcium hydroxide to your water and give it time, and calcium carbonate will precipitate out. But the problem is that leaves chalk and it strips your water of calcium. So as far as implementing that in a commercial brewer, you start to look at a situation where you're either installing. An expensive system, a a specialized system, or you're looking at having at least two cold liquor tanks. So one of them is decanting, while one of them is is being used for brewing. So that's what really led us at Ale Asylum to go to a lactic acid treatment because lactic acid removes the alkalinity and doesn't drop any solids, unlike the slake lime or unlike phosphoric acid, which is also a a common treatment. Phosphoric acid is attractive um, because you're using the same mechanism that that employs calcium to uh, reduce mash pH by uh, phosphates in the malt. So really similar there. But if you use that to treat water before your mash, um, it drops solids. It pulls calcium out of solution, um, just like, like lime does.
0: Yeah, I know some folks prefer phosphoric for that reason, uh, with the idea being that the flavor implications would be as close as possible to what's already occurring during mashing. But your article did reference another paper that examined this topic. So I encourage listeners to check out that paper after they read your TQ article. Coming up, Joe describes how he treats his water at Ale Asylum. We discuss calcium retention, the challenges of determining malt acidity, and more. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas.
1: Additional
0: support provided by...
1: Brewer Supply Group is now the proud exclusive distributor of Dingamans Malt. BSG is thrilled to partner with the Dingamans family and to distribute their superior quality malts to brewers, distillers, and homebrewers in the U.S. and Canada. Dingamans Malt combines modern techniques with their long-standing focus on quality and service to their customers. and remains 100% independent and family-owned. Go to
0: bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets at Surly Brewing February 20th. District St. Louis meets at Third Wheel Brewing February 20th. District Carolinas meets at River Rat Brewery in Columbia, South Carolina, February 22nd. District Northern California holds its technical conference February 27th and 28th in Sonoma County. One of our newest districts, District Great Plains, meets February 28th and 29th in Kansas City. District Carolinas is putting on a two-day HACCP course at White Labs in Asheville March 9th and 10th. The District Mid-Atlantic Spring Meeting is March 14th at Dogfish Head. District St. Louis meets March 19th at Urban Chestnut. District Milwaukee joins forces with the Wisconsin Brewers Guild for a technical conference March 26th in Green Bay. The District Texas Spring Meeting is March 27th through the 29th in Fort Worth. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now, back to the show. Okay, let, let's talk more about how you treat your water uh, in the brewery at Ale Asylum. Uh, you make a strong pitch in your article for getting all brewing water down to um, one milli equivalent per liter of effective alkalinity. Why don't you walk us through that, that whole process? Where, where do you start?
2: Sure. So the water, water coming into Ale Asylum, our calcium content is usually in the 70s or 80s, as far as just straight parts per million or milligrams per liter. And our alkalinity is up around 300 parts per million as calcium carbonate. So as calcium carbonate is one of these weird units that water, um, water treatment facilities just like to use. Um, they like to think of everything as being, you know, what would this be if this was all made from calcium carbonate? So that's a pretty high amount of alkalinity. And one of the things that A.J. Delange mentions in, in his articles, and I, I highly recommend that you follow the links to um, his pages both his technical quarterly article and some of the stuff he's just published himself on the web, um, is that if there's no shortage of calcium, water will naturally decarbonate over time to about one milli equivalent per liter. And so I just chose that because if water will get down to that naturally and not really go any farther, it means that it's not going to drop any chalk on its own. So what I'm doing is, is matching um, the difference in equivalents per liter of my water. So my starting point, um, 300, um, comes out to be, I believe, about six equivalents per liter and taking that down to one um, by adding lactic acid. And lactic acid is a little bit tricky because as the pH of a solution drops, um, it dissociates as hydrogen ions less effectively. So... I assume dissociation um, at my target mash pH. So it's not completely exact, but it gets me where I want in the mash.
0: That's pretty cool. And so I believe you said you're adding um, all of this acid to your your cold liquor tank. Is that correct?
2: That is correct. And the reason why we do that is because if you add it to a hot liquor tank, it, it becomes a moving target, especially when you move away from being a brew pub that brews once a day, you know, if you're brewing once a day, you can fill your hot liquor tank and treat the water and it's, it's fine. You still have the issue if you're collecting hot water um, during work chilling that your water's getting heated up during the, through the heat exchanger. And when it does that, it starts to drop chalk. And same thing if you're in a, a busy production brewery where you're constantly pulling out of the hot liquor tank, adding to it, sometimes doing them both at the same time, it becomes impossible to to hit a treatment target. So having the cold liquor tank before any of that happens is really nice. And then we can use treated water for cooling, for work cooling, for mash blending, sparge water blending, everything like that. So the water is always treated the same.
0: Yeah, I remember the first time I took apart a plate heat exchanger, and I was very pleased with the cleanliness on the wort side and, and shocked by how much scale was on the water side. Um, so that's something a lot of people don't always think about until you've taken one apart. Um, uh, and then I assume that um, are you, in this situation, is your um, hot liquor tank um, only getting topped up from the from the cold liquor tank, or are you making this adjustment every time you add cold water
2: t- to the hot hot supply? Um, no, it's only getting topped up from the, from the cold liquor tank. And we get so much water from cooling our wort that we never have to fill hot liquor tanks until the end of the day.
0: Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Moving on, you made some, some pretty interesting observations about calcium retention through the brewing process. Why don't you um, tell us about what you've been able to figure out there?
2: So the short answer is that I haven't been able to figure out anything. <laughs> um, but I, I did come across two studies that, that explored that a little bit. One of them was a, a formal um, master's thesis, I believe, from, uh, I think it was in Belgium. And then the other was just, uh, it was a Sierra Nevada presentation um, given to a master brewer's district where the, the slides were available on time. So taking the data that I could, I could extract out of, out of those two, um, those two exercises um, led me to believe that our calcium retention throughout the entire brewing process is approximately 30%. And I think you need to really take that number with a grain of salt. But it's sort of until we can afford nice lab equipment that's really what I'm using to account for it somehow instead of not at all.
0: Very good. So um, before we get into the next topic, why don't we go back to your kind of practical process uh, in the brewery there? So you've um, you know you've you've done your treatment to the cold water tank and you've gotten down to one milli equivalent. Um, what generally happens after that? You know, based on the the different beers.
2: Um, So afterward, we design a mash treatment for each individual recipe. So the the baseline water coming out of the cold liquor tank, going into the hot liquor tank, that's always the same. Um, But every grain bill is different. We have, in general, darker malts contributing more acid than lighter malts. And most of our mash pHs, we want to be around... 5.35, 5.35, we have to put in some number for a mathematical target. Um, if it's between 5.2 and 5.5, I'm happy. Um, we're usually between 5.3 and 5.4, and that's after the samples are cooled to room temperature um, after pulling those samples near the end of the mash. So, depending on the grain bill of each recipe, we'll either add acidulated malt um, just to the grain bill, replace some of the pale, pale ale malt or Pilsner malt, or we will add slake lime on, on very rare occasions when we actually need to raise the pH of the mash.
0: Okay, cool. Um, we started getting into this, but the the second half of your article really uh, starts to get into the challenges of determining malt acidity. And you've got plenty of references in there to A.J. DeLange's uh, 2015 uh, Master Brewers TQ article. And I know there's also been some some other efforts in this area. I think Breeze presented some similar work at the Master Brewers Conference a couple of years ago. I think maybe that was in the Jacksonville uh, Conference. Anyway, uh, why don't you get uh, go ahead and explain what you set out to do here in regards to malt acidity and, and what you ended up finding out.
2: Sure. Um, What I really wanted to do was come up with a simple tool where a brewer could just say, this is my grain bill, this is my target mash pH, Um, this is what you need to add in terms of either lactic acid, acidulated malt, or slake lime to make that happen. And I think AJ did a a wonderful job of outlining the, the complexity of the issue, all the math that needs to go into it. Um, what I was doing at the time when I, when I read his piece, and, and his piece was kind of mind-blowing because of this, I was simply doing the, the Weiermann acidulated malt method and applying that to all different malts. I would, I would try to figure out what's the pH shift per percentage of the grain bill for any given malt. And reading AJ's piece, I was like, wow, this is a completely different approach and it makes way more sense. And so I tried to extract from his numbers, I think he did a caramel malt, he did a roasted malt, and a couple Pilsner malts. Um, based on that, based on some work done by Kai Troster with a whole bunch of other malt acidities, um, what I could use to estimate. And based on AJ's data, I got numbers that didn't make any sense compared with what I was doing. And what I believe the, the driving reason behind that was, was that AJ did his tests um, at, at protein rest temperatures. Um, and so I wanted to do that at conversion temperatures. And so I took AJ's method, um, did it much more crudely, and applied it to a a wide range of malts. I I don't remember the number. I feel like I did like about a dozen malts. And so from there, I I came up with some correlations between color for caramel malts, for base malts. Um, Same as uh, Kite Roaster found, I I found no real color correlation with dark roasted malts and then just kind of built those all into a spreadsheet that that estimates everything for me.
0: That's cool. And what did you find? um, You mentioned a couple surprises there. Why don't you tell us about that?
2: Uh, sure. So, um, number one with base malts, um, I knew that in general darker malts were more acidic, but the slope um, of that acidity was actually backwards from, from what I found. And a lot more work still needs to be done. I don't want to make that claim as absolute fact, but just based on a handful of observations, um, the acidity required you know, to move it from one point to another actually decreased as you got darker for pale malts, but the total acidity to move to a given value was still greater. Um, the darker the malt, um, sorry, the, the amount of acid that the malt would contribute was still greater for darker malts. Now, that phenomenon went away when I got into um, some darker toasted malts, caramel malts, and things like that. It behaved much more, much more like I expected. The other thing that surprised me was just that when a malster reports malt color, it doesn't seem to always mean the same thing. So um, what U.S. malsters are reporting, a lot, of the, a lot of the spec sheets, the certificates of analysis you get when you buy malt, it'll say, Love a bond. And from talking to maltsters in the U.S., it basically means SRM. I, I haven't talked to a U.S. maltster that, that treats it differently than that. But European maltsters are, are doing things totally differently. They're doing a conversion that seems like it's actually trying to get to true love of bond, so the old comparison slide method. So you have to kind of rectify that. And at Ale Island, we do use a lot of European caramel malts and dark roasted malts. So it's something that we have to deal with. <laughs>
0: If you enjoyed today's interview with Joe, be sure to check out his article, Brew House Water and Mash Chemistry Management 1 Approach in the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly, Volume 54, Number 1. You can get there from the publications menu or by using the industry's best search bar at mbaa.com. Don't forget to ask your district officers if you can help them get those district presentations uploaded to the archive and drop me a line if you think there's a presenter we should have on the show all the links you need are in the show notes are you enjoying the master brewers podcast let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more take a minute to thank our sponsors there's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like hopsteiner abs proximity malt bsg and gusmer so please Let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.